Three verses together. We're going to read Hebrews 1, 1, 2, 3. Actually, uh, let's all read it together because it's just so good and I want all of us to focus. Let's all read it out loud together. Here is what the author of Hebrews said. God, who at various times and in various ways in time past, well, uh, spoke to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last day spoken to us by son, his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the worlds, who being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his very being, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Amen. So this is week number four, where we are in the book of Hebrews. And uh, let me recap, so I see who remembers what we've been talking about. The book of Hebrews is written to? Hebrews. Hebrews. Okay, good. That's a, that's a good thing. The book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. These are Jewish people who became, who became Christian, who became Christian, they came to know Christ. And then after they became Christian, they wanted to go back to Judaism. So the author of Hebrews wrote this book to them in, an, in a way just to warn them not to go back to Judaism. And in order to argue for that, he spent almost the first 10 chapters, with the exception of the last part of chapter 10, arguing that Jesus is better. He is superior. You don't need to go back because it's better here, right? It's better to be a Christian. Christ is superior. And then after that, from uh, Hebrews 10, um, 18, till the end of the chapter, he gave them some practical tips of how, how they can live their Christian life and endure persecution. In his argument from Hebrews 1.1 to Hebrews 1.10, he went over multiple items comparing how Jesus in the New Testament is better and superior than the Old Testament. And in the first part that we just read, that's Hebrews 1, 1, 2, 3, the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is superior than the prophets of the Old Testament. Good. Two people are following me so far. That's wonderful. So Jesus is superior than the prophet. That is the message that the author of Hebrews was conveying through verse 1 to verse 3. And here's the outlines that we have been discussing so far. We said that in order to support his argument that Jesus is superior to the prophet, the author of Hebrews argued for two things. Number one, that Jesus has a superior message, that the message is superior, and that's verse one and the first part of verse two. And number two, that the messenger himself is superior than the messengers of the Old Testament. Amen? Amen. We spent the last three weeks in the first one and a half verse talking about how the message is superior. The message that Jesus brought versus the message that the prophets brought. We said first week that the reason why the message of Jesus is superior is that there are so much fragmentation in the message that was delivered by the prophets, right? It's various times, various ways, various prophets. 
but the message that Jesus has brought is final and complete. In the time, in the last days, in the time of the fulfillment of all the promises of God, God has spoke to us one final and complete message in his son. Amen? The week after, we talked about how God spoke to us in the Son and how the Son is the revealer of the Father throughout the Scripture. And last week, we spoke about the actual message. And we said that the message is spoken by the prophet versus the message that's spoken by Jesus. There is continuity in the message, but there is superiority in the message that Jesus has spoken to us. Amen? The message that was delivered by the prophet, for the most part, was promises of temporary salvation, right? But the message that Jesus has delivered is promises of eternal salvation from God. Amen? The very end of verse 2, the first part, has spoken to us in son. We said in, in Greek, there is no his, there is no that, there is nothing. It's just in son. In the one who is, has the nature of the son of God. And then once the author of Hebrews mentioned the word son, he launched into seven descriptions of who that son is. Amen? Again, remember, he's arguing that Jesus is superior than the prophet. The message is superior, but then he moved on to that the messenger is superior than the messengers of the Old Testament. Amen? So he had seven full descriptions of Jesus. Buckle up, this is going to blow your mind away. It's my, one of my absolute favorite passages in the scripture. Who is that son? Let's look at him. Number one, whom God has appointed heir of all things. And through whom he has made the worlds, being the brightness of his glory. Number three. Number four, the express image of his person. This is uh, King James and New King James. A better translation is the exact representation of his being. We'll talk about that. Number five, upholding all things by the word of his power. Number six, he has by himself purged us from our sins. And number seven, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Amen? Seven description of who is that son. Every single one of them is absolutely amazing. Before we move on to look into these descriptions, I want to highlight small things here. As far as the Greek construction of that sentence, in Greek, the word chi, which is and, is the most common word you can ever hear. It's, sometimes it's just, they, they throw it there. It has no meaning, no purpose. It's not even, you cannot translate it, but it's there. Yet, when you look at these seven descriptions of Jesus, that word chi, and, was only mentioned twice. So the Greek doesn't go like this. He is the heir of all things, and the one by whom God made the world, and the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his being, and upholding all things. It doesn't go and, 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 and. There's only two ends in that seven descriptions. Amen? The first end is between the first two clauses, that he's appointed heir of all things, and he is the one by whom God made the worlds. Amen? And then we see the word and again between the third and the fourth clauses. He's being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his being. And that has a reason. That has a purpose. The author of Hebrews, by putting the word and only twice here, he's linking together these two clauses, the first and the second. They have one meaning on one purpose or going one way. One way. And then the third and the fourth, they also link together and they also emphasize one point. You guys follow me? The first and second point, he has appointed him heir of all things, and through him he has made the worlds. This is the relationship between Jesus and the created world. Amen? 
And then the, the third and the fourth, he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. This is the relationship between the son and the father, God the father himself. Amen. You can also argue that the last six and seven, they're also connected, but it is not the same meaning. It's a cause effect. He purged us our sins. That's the cause, the effect of that he sat down at the right hand of majesty. So this is important. So this way, when we try to analyze these seven descriptions of the son, it's important to know what is linked together to understand the purpose and the meaning that the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Now let's move on and look at each one of these descriptions. Number one, that God has appointed Jesus, the Father has appointed the Son, to be heir of all things. In that phrase, we see that the Son is the one for whom the whole world is made, right? I was thinking about it. If I am a businessman, if I'm a rich person, and I have a kid or two, I work so hard and I try to develop as much wealth as I possibly can. Why? I know I'm going to die. I'm not taking none of that with me, right? But why do I work so hard? Because I want to give everything to my heir, right? So the heir here, when, we, when the Bible say, the author of Hebrews say that Jesus is the heir of all things, that means that Jesus is the one for whom everything was made. Amen? Jesus himself referred to himself as the heir. In, in Matthew 21, 38, in the parable of the wicked servants, Jesus said that God is like the one who planted a vineyard and he has some wicked servants. He starts sending people to them and they rejected them and stoned them and punished them. And then what happens? Here it is, Matthew 21, 38. But when the tenant saw the son... The, 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 the vineyard owner sent his own son. And then when they saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. Remember, this is Jesus talking about himself and how he is being rejected. And he referred to himself as the heir. Amen. So the heir is, is a title that Jesus even used for himself. Now, who is the heir? Number one, the heir, logically and legally, is the one who is the legal owner of everything, right? When you die, your wealth goes to your heirs, right? It doesn't go to anybody else. It goes to the heir. The heir is the one who is the legal owner of everything. And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews was telling us about Jesus. He is the heir. He is the owner of everything that was ever made. Amen? Jesus said that about himself. Ready for this claim, crazy claim that Jesus made? John 16, 14, and 15. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, amen? And he's saying, after I leave, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And then he says, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Not glorify God. Think about that. Supposedly, everything we do is to glorify God. But Jesus said, no, no, this is not really to glorify the Father. This is to glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Now, look at this. Look at this. All, actually say it together. All things that the Father has are mine. Think about these words. Imagine this. Imagine that we all hear about this good Preacher who's going about doing good and healing those old who are oppressed. And maybe during that time, there was people who for the first time want to hear and listen to Jesus. And then they go to listen to that supposedly amazingly wonderful preacher. And they hear him say this. All the things that the Father God has are 
Insane. Who can say stuff like this? I told you before, that the claims that Jesus made about himself, it is so radical. Jesus is either the most deceptive, manipulative liar ever walked the face of this earth, or he is God in flesh. He cannot be anything in between. Amen? All things that the Father has is our mind. He is the legal owner of everything. But the heir is also the future owner of everything, right? You can be heir, you don't own it yet, but it's all going to be yours in the future, right? The heir is the legal owner, he also is the future owner. And we see that throughout the book of Hebrews that you can read throughout the scripture that Jesus, he is the heir and ultimately the whole world will come under subjection to Jesus and even his enemies will be his footstool. Amen? Jesus is the heir because he's the legal owner of everything and he is the future owner of everything. The one word that can be a little bit strange here is the word appointed. When, when the author of Hebrews said that God has appointed Jesus to be heir of all, all things. Remember, he is the son, right? The son by default is the heir. You don't need to appoint the son to be the heir. Amen? But the author of Hebrews here is saying that even though he is the son, he was appointed heir to everything. I believe that the reason why he's doing, like the author of Hebrews used that word, he's not talking about Jesus being the eternal son of God, but in terms of salvation and redemption. He is the Messiah and the Redeemer. And in these terms, as the Messiah and the Redeemer, the one who fulfilled the salvation plan of God, he is appointed to be heir of all things. Amen? Remember that even the, the verse that we just read, it says that after he has purged us by himself from our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty and in other places will we'll read tell his enemies are being made his footstool and everything will come under his subjection amen remember this he redeemed us from our sins the consequences of the redemption he sat down at the right hand of majesty tell everything is under subjection under his feet amen so in that sense he was appointed heir of all things in terms of him being the messiah and the redeemer Jesus is the legal owner of everything that is. Amen? But not only that, he's also not the one for whom everything is made. He's the one also by whom everything is made. Amen? That's what the author of Hebrews said right after that. Through whom he has made the worlds. God has made everything through Jesus. This is not a strange claim or a unique claim in the Bible. We read it multiple other times in the scripture that everything was made through Jesus. One small example, John 1, 3. Everything that was made was made through or by him. Just, just one, one example in John 1, 3. Now, <clears throat> the scriptures that teaches that Jesus, our God the Father, made everything through the Son. Jehovah Witnesses take that to argue that since everything was made through Jesus, or the Father made everything through the Son, therefore Jesus cannot be really a full creator like the Father. He might be an agent in the process of creation. He might be a junior partner in the process of creation, and that's what they believe. They believe Jesus was created, and him and God created everything, right? And they use all these scripture as a proof text that the Father had made everything through the Son. Therefore, the Son is nothing but an agent, a mere agent or a partner 
helping God in the creation process. Amen? Do you want to know the answer to that? Yeah. One person? Okay. We'll go through it anyways. <laughs> All right. So let's look into that. Is it true that because God the Father has made everything through the Son, therefore the Son is an agent? This is absolutely absurd and ridiculous. Let's look into that. First point, if we're going to argue that since the Father made everything through the Son, therefore the Son is nothing but a mere agent in the creation process, therefore we have to argue in the same manner that the Father was nothing more than a mere agent in the creation process because the Bible a couple of times tells us that everything was also made through or by the Father. You guys follow me? Romans eleven thirty six. For of him, that's God, and read with me, through him and to him are all things. So here Paul is telling us in Romans eleven thirty six that everything was made through or by God, the Father, right? Hebrews 2.10, we're going to discuss that in a few weeks. For it was fitting for him, that's the Father, not the Son, the Father, for whom are all things, and by or through whom are all things. Amen? So if we're going to argue that because things are made by or through Jesus, that Jesus is an agent in the creation process by being fair to the Bible, we also must Agree and argue that the Father is nothing but a mere agent in the creation process. You guys follow me? Yeah. Number two. Uh, I don't think they have an answer for that. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, number two. Well, the whole, the funny thing about arguing that Jesus is an agent in the creation process is we really don't have to speculate or try to come up with theories about how God created everything. Because the Bible actually documents for us how God created everything. Amen? And that's in Genesis 1 and 2. We don't have to argue if Jesus was an agent in the creation process. We just can go back and read the creation process and see if there was an agent in that process or not. Right? And I don't know about you, but when you go and read Genesis 1 and 2, how God created the light, for example, I don't see that God said, hey, Jesus, give me a hand here. Let's do this together. My Bible doesn't say that. Right? How did God create light? He said, let there be light and there was light, right? Everything God created was just God uttering a word and things come to existence, right? I don't see in that creation process that God had an agent or an aide or an assistant to help him in the creation process. Do you? How did God create man? He just went to the dust. He formed the, head, he formed the body. And I don't know about you, but my Bible doesn't say that after God formed the head and the torso, he say, hey, Jesus, come here. Well, yeah, give me a hand. I'm going to finish the rest of the body, and you do the hands and feet. And then after they did it together, God the Father said, hey, I'm going to blow in one nostril, and you blow in the other nostril. That's not my Bible, right? How did God create man? He just formed it from, from him, from the dust of the earth, blow in his nostril and Adam became a living soul. No agent, no aid, no middleman. Amen? God created everything by himself. The only two things that we don't read in the story of creation, how God created was the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. We don't know how he created them. He, did he have an aid or an agent? Well, Genesis 1-1 doesn't tell us. However, if you continue reading and you get to Isaiah 44, 24, here is what the Lord says. Here's what God says. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heaven 
with the help of a little bit of an aid. Does it say that? How does he do it? All alone. And just in case you're really not understanding what he's saying, he said after that, who spread abroad the earth with the help of my son, Jesus. By myself. No aid, no agent, no nothing. So the argument that Jesus was an assistant to God in the creation process, honestly, it's an insult to God. Yeah. Amen? But number three as well, let's take a closer look at that. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews is telling us that everything was made through Jesus, through the Son, right? But later on, just a few verses later, the author of Hebrews tells us what does it mean that things were created through the Son? And here's what it says in verse 8 and 10. But to the Son, he says, now, the author of Hebrews is quoting a scripture from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms, okay? And he's applying that scripture from the book of Psalms to the Son, not to God the Father. He's applying that to the Son. And he says in verses 8 and 10, but to the Son, he says, what does the scripture say? You, Lord, that's the Son, not the Father, the Son, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hand. The author of Hebrews took that verse from the book of Psalms and applied it to Jesus and said what the psalmist was talking about here is not the Father, it is Jesus, the divine Son of the living God. Amen? So the author of Hebrews' own personal understanding of how things came to existence through the Son is that he is not a mere agent, but he is the actual creator of everything. Amen? Amen? Through whom God has made all the worlds, and the Greek word for worlds, he is, uh, he, worlds here is very interesting. The author of Hebrews didn't choose the word cosmos, which means the material world that we live in, but he chose a different word called I, I want, or the, the ages, the times, the dispensations. That is the Greek word that the author of Hebrews used here. He used it here, and he used it also in chapter 11, verse 3. We'll talk about that. Now, this Greek word that the author of Hebrews chose is actually a very interesting. It, it includes, look at this, it includes the physical universe, it includes the material stuff that God created, as well as the times and the ages through which the purposes of God are gradually unfolded. Amen? The idea here is that Jesus is the creator of all things materialistically, and he is also Lord over history. Amen? Sitting, sitting in motion the universe and managing it throughout its successive time periods. In the past, we just read about him, he created everything. Amen? And in chapter 9, verse 26, the author of Hebrews says that he appeared once at the end of the ages, which is our present time, to do what? To to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what he's doing presently. Amen? And in the future, in chapter 2, verse 5, he said that the whole world will subject to Jesus. Amen? Jesus is not just the creator of all things material, but he's also the one who's in charge of the universe and the stage in which everything is functioning. Amen? 
Amen? Amen? Think about this. Again, the context here is this. The author of Hebrews is comparing the son with the prophets. And he's saying that how Jesus is superior than all the prophets. Amen? And in essence, what the author of Hebrews is telling us is this. Every prophet lived and died and served God and delivered a message over a period of time. Jesus, on the other hand, is Lord over all the time. Over time. Amen? That is the difference between the son and the prophet. And that's why the son is a whole lot more superior. Amen? Amen. So Jesus is the one for whom all things are created. Number two, Jesus is the one by whom everything is created. Number three, Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God. Amen? Let's look at that phrase. Now, that word brightness in Greek, it's, 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 it's hard. And the reason why it's difficult, it's because it only was mentioned once in the New Testament, and it's right here. It was never mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, and it was mentioned only once in the Septuagint. We talked about the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? It was only mentioned once in the Septuagint before. So it's really a difficult word to like, really understand precisely what it means or what is, the, what is the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. And the Greek, again, is just hard to precisely understand, but the word can either mean radiance or it can mean reflection, okay? That's pretty much uh, the possible options here. It can mean radiance, which is, uh, the way I understand it is the beams of light that, like if you have the sun, and then there's the light beams that carries what the sun has into us, that's the radiance, that's an active form. The other, word, the other meaning is it can also mean reflection passively, like how the moon reflects the sun. So the word can be either understood actively as radiation or beams of light, or it can be understood passively as reflection. Some translation will have that Jesus is the reflection of the glory of God, passively. Either way is, is you can argue both ways. There's no right and wrong here. Either way, the idea, though, is the same. You guys follow me? That Jesus is the one who carries and expresses the very glory of God. Amen? 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 One, one Old Testament, one uh, ancient commentator put it this way. As the son never seen without evulsions, nor the father without his son. Amen? And this is one, um, F.F. Bruce wrote it this way, it's so amazing. Just as the glory is really in the effulgence, so is the glory of God that cannot be found or expressed apart from Christ. Think about that. Can you imagine God being glorious without having all the radiance and the light around him, just a dim, dark thing saying, oh, I'm glorious? It doesn't make any sense, right? All the glory is really in, in the radiance, right? All the majesty is really in the radiance. And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews is telling us here, that Jesus is everything about the glory of God. And without Jesus, in a way, you can argue that there is no glory for God. Amen? He is the radiance. He is the carrier, the expressor of the glory of God. Amen? And that makes perfect sense. Jesus himself prayed in, in John 17, 5, and he said this. Again, back to the crazy stuff that Jesus said about himself. You ready for this one? John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now, pause here for a second. What kind of crazy prayer is this, right? Somebody praying to God and say, hey, God, let's share the glory together. 
Glorify me the same way you glorify yourself. Amen? Remember God said in the Old Testament, I should give no glory to nobody, right? But Jesus make an exception for himself. Glorify me together with yourself. And just in case you think you're misunderstanding him, he's going even deeper into this stuff. And he said, with the glory which, what? I had with you before the world was. Jesus is saying, hey, God, you know, we're pals in this glory thing. Amen? You and me just share it together. We're co-equal partners in that glory even before the world was. Amen? So Jesus is the one who receives equal glory, shares equal glory with the Father. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is this, that every glimpse of glory ever expressed to the creation, to mankind, it was Jesus who expressed that to us. Amen? Remember, for example, Moses, when he wanted to see the glory of God and God told him, you can't do that, you'll die. And then God hit him in the cliff of the rock and then he passed. And after God passed, Moses sneak peeked and just saw the very end, the very tail, the very back of God's uh, glory, right? That is Jesus expressing the glory of God to Moses. And the list goes on and on to Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6, to Ezekiel and Ezekiel chapter 1. Every glimpse of glory the author of Hebrews want to tell us was ever revealed to mankind or creation. It was only carried and expressed through the Son. He is the radiance and the very reflection of the glory of God. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Think about that. Again. The author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus for the prophets, right? That's the context. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is this. Remember Moses? How great of a man of God he is. He brought the law. God talked to him face to face. He was one of the main prophets God has ever sent to humanity. That Moses could not handle the glory of God. Amen? Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and just a glimpse of the glory of God revealed to Isaiah, Isaiah cried out and he said, Wow to me, I am undone. The author of Hebrews is saying every single man of God, regardless of how godly they are, could never handle the glory of God. Amen? Jesus, on the other hand, is the very reason there is glory for God. Amen? And that's the difference and why Jesus is far more superior than all the prophets of the Old Testament. Amen? Amen. They are servants, but he is the son. Amen? Yeah. He is the radiation, the, the, the reflection of the very glory of God. But number four, he is the exact representation of God's very being. Amen? Amen. Now, the exact representation here is another interesting Greek word. It is the, the Greek word character, from which we get the English character or characteristic. That's where we get the English word from. That word, when they started with it, they, it used to express, um, that uh, was used for a die or, or for stamping of uh, impression on a coin. And then eventually it evolved to mean the actual impression itself. And then it evolved even more to, to mean this, look at this, the distinguishing feature or personal characteristic of a person. That's how it was used, to express the distinguished features of somebody. Amen? Like in this church, we say the word Egyptian, right? That's a distinguished feature of one person. 
That would be me, right? There's nobody else like that here. This is the unique thing about me. Let's say superintendent. That would be Brother Conley. There's nobody else here who's their superintendent except Brother Conley, right? This is the unique characteristics that sets the person apart from everybody else, right? Yet Jesus, look at this, the author of Hebrews, say that Jesus has this exact unique characteristics that makes God God and everything else isn't. You guys follow me? You guys follow me? This is amazing. This is so amazing. And that's, that's what we say as Trinitarian. Jesus is not the Father. He is just exactly like him. Amen? And it is so interesting that Jehovah Witness translation, the New World translation, even though it's manipulative in so many ways, they just couldn't do anything with this one. They translated the exact same way, the exact representation of his very nature. I don't know if they didn't know what they're signing up for. They just put it the, the exact same way that it's supposed to be. Amen? It's more Trinitarian than King James. King James read the express image of his being, which is, you know, like him. You can debate that, you know. But the exact representation of his very nature. Amen? Amen. The best modern day analogy that I found for this one is, is the facts, the facts, Millie. So if I take these notes and I fax it to Barb, right, you should expect that the facts that Barb should receive not to be similar to these notes, right? You should expect that fact to be what? The exact same thing as the notes in my hand, right? It should have the same margins, the same font, the same highlights, the same words, the same order of words. Everything that is unique about this document should be the exact same thing that will be in Barb's hand. Amen? And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews is telling us about Jesus. He is everything that God is. There is absolutely nothing about the Father that Jesus isn't. He is the bearer of the unique characteristics that makes the Father God. Amen? In other hands, I, I imagine this hypothetical situation. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is this. If, if the Father and the Son are to stand next to each other, you can never tell them apart. Amen? He is the exact representation of the very essence and the very nature of God. You see, the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is not similar to the Father. Amen? Jesus is the same as the Father. Amen? Jesus isn't like God in many ways. Jesus is like God in every possible way. Amen? Jesus is not the closest description to God. Jesus is the very exact description of God. Amen? 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 This is amazing, right? Yeah. Think about that. He is the exact representation. Now, we know that God the Father is almighty, right? Now, if Jesus was just a tiny bit, not as mighty as the Father, would he be the exact representation? No. He will be a good representation, but he will not be that exact representation. Amen? If God is almighty and Jesus is the exact representation, then Jesus is also almighty. Amen? If the Father is self-existing, now if Jesus was created or made or, or anything like that at any point of time, would he be the exact representation? No, no way. 
He will be a close representation, but he will never be the exact representation. Amen? Jesus will be only the exact representation if he's also self-existing, just like the Father is self-existence. You guys follow me? If God is omnipresent, then Jesus is omnipresent. If God is omniscient, then Jesus is omniscient. If God is all-knowledgeable, almighty, or powerful, then Jesus is the exact same way. Everything that God is, Jesus is in the same way. Amen? He is the exact representation of God's very nature. Amen? I don't think they can. There's no way. They can't. There's no way around that. They have. You can get them stuck. They're not too hard. But uh, you just need to know your stuff. That's why. Amen? So... Um, Let's, let's recap here. Who is the son so far? Number one, he's the heir of all things. Number two, he's the one by whom everything was made. And these are connected. Number three, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his very being. Number five, and there's no end here. I'm sorry. I, I copied this from King James and it's not very accurate. Um, Upholding, there's no end in the beginning. Upholding all things by the word of his power. The word for upholding here was translated, upholds the New, New American Standard or sustaining, like the NIV. Now, this word that the author of Hebrews say is rarely ever have a static meaning. It always have a dynamic meaning. What I'm trying to say is this. You can maintain a machine one of two ways. You can maintain it statically or you can maintain it dynamically. What I'm trying to say is this. You can turn on the dishwasher, right? Push all the buttons and let the dishwasher run its course. You might be standing next to it watching if something wrong happened, do you step in and fix that which is wrong, right? That is static maintenance or static uh, sustaining of the dishwasher because it's really, you set it in motion and they'll take care of itself, right? Now, there's also a dynamic uh, way of sustaining things like driving a car. When you drive a car, Hopefully you're not doing what I do, and you actually pay attention all the time, because if you just not look for one second, then you might get into big, big trouble, right? So there's two ways. <laughs> yeah, you, you'll get along with Katrina very well. <laughs> there is two ways of sustaining something or upholding something statically and dynamically, and the word here is barely, rarely ever used in a static way. The idea here is that Jesus is the one who's upholding and sustaining Sustaining all things that ever existed. He's the one who managed it, actively managed it all the time. Amen? Amen? That word was used in the Septuagint in Numbers 11, 14. Now look at this. That's when Moses was leading the people of God. And under the burden of that nation that was always complaining, Moses went to God and he said, I can't do it anymore. Give me some help. Amen? And God said, okay, get 70 people. I'll put some of your spirit on them and they will help you lead it. And that word that the Septuagint translated in Numbers 11, 14, now where Moses said that he is not able to bear, that's the exact same word, sustain, uphold, actively maintain the leadership, the guidance of these people. Amen? Amen. Think about this. Again, the context is comparing Jesus to the Old Testament prophets, right? Think about this. Moses, the Bible say, was the meekest man ever. It's really hard to piss this guy off, right? He's just very patient. He take you as much as you want. You want to abuse him, he'll be so patient with you, right? Now think about this and listen to me. 
Moses, Moses, the man of God, he is crashed and collapsed under the burden of sustaining one nation. Amen? You guys follow me? Let me repeat that again. Jesus, Moses, the man of God, he is collapsed under the burden of guiding one nation. Amen? Amen. Jesus, God, the man he is, is maintaining not one nation, but all things, guiding every possible thing that was ever made. And how is he doing it? By just one word of his mighty power. Amen? And that's why Jesus is far more superior. He is the son of God and everybody else is not. Amen? He is the one who's upholding everything by the word of his power. Upholding how much? All things. Amen? Every minute detail in this world, Jesus is actively managing and sustaining. And it only takes him one word to do that. Amen? And how is he doing it? Again, the word of his power. The phrase draws attention to the son deity and omnipotence. He's all powerful, all strong. The one who created the universe and space in time, he just created everything, is also the one who's guiding it and maintaining it and sustaining it to its appointed goals. Amen? Amen. So what did we say about the son so far? Number one, he is the... Heir of everything. Number two, he is the one by whom everything was made. Number three, he's the brightness, the radiance of God's glory. Number four, he's the express image of his being. And number five, he's the one who's sustaining all things by the word of his power. Amen? Amen. Before we move forward, let me pause here. I want you to look into the relationship between the Son and the Father as, as the author of Hebrews is describing it to us. Because that's pretty much in line with everything else in the New Testament, or the whole Bible for that matter. How the Son and the Father are related to each other. They are one equal, they're equal in their essence, but their subordination in the function. You guys follow me? They are equal in the nature, but their subordination in the function. They're equal in the nature. We're so clear about that, that the son is the legal owner of everything. The son is the creator of everything. The son is the one without whom the father has no glory. The son is the exact representation of God's very nature. And number five, the son is the sustainer of everything. These are all attributes of God. Right, The son is equal to the father exactly when it comes to the nature. But there is subordination in the function, and the author of Hebrews did not neglect that. Remember, he said that God did what? Spoke to us in his son. Amen? God has appointed the son to be heir of all things. And number three, that God has created everything through him. There is functional subordination, but there is equality in the nature. You guys with me? The fact that Jesus subordinate to the Father when it comes to the function doesn't mean he is a less of a God than the Father. Amen? I told you this example before. If me and Katrina are home alone, Katrina and I have something that sets us apart than the tables and the chairs and the walls in our house, which is that we are human, right? Everything else in the house isn't human. It's only Katrina and I in that empty house that are human. You guys with me? Now, the Bible say that technically Katrina is supposed to submit to me when it comes to disagreements and stuff like that. The fact that she's functionally subordinate to me doesn't mean that she is less of a human than I am. You guys follow me? You're with me. 
Same thing when it comes to the father and the son. I, I think that's the closest analogy I can think of. The fact that the son is the, the one who is fulfilling the will of the father when it comes to God's plan of salvation and he's functionally subordinate, it doesn't mean that, that he is less of a God than the father. Amen? All right. Brother Connie, I hope you take it easy on me on the ordination exam with the Trinity. I already answered your question. (laughs) All right. Now let's move on to number uh, six. Now, here is what the author of Hebrews say. That the son who had by himself made purification of our sins. Amen? The word for purification here, it literally means cleansing. Um, We talked about this before, and we said that sin is breaking the law of God that puts us under the judgment of God, right? But sin is also a stain, a filth that makes us unclean before a holy and a righteous God, right? This is two aspects of sin. Now, the author of Hebrews' word here, purification, deals primarily with sin being a filth that needs cleansing before a holy and a righteous God. Amen? He said that Jesus has performed that ritual uh, um, purification, that we see roots for that even in the Day of Atonement and throughout the Old Testament, how the high priest is the one who's supposed to do that ritual cleansing for people who happen to be stained by sin before the eyes of a holy and a righteous God. Amen? Number two, the word that the author of Hebrews here used, made, is structured in a way that it tells you it's, it's a one event that took time in the past and it's all done. He, has, he had made. That's the perfect translation in English. He had made. It's all done. It's not something he's still working on. It's not something that is continuing in the future. It's one event that took place in the past, and now it's all done. Amen? And even though it is not explicit, it's implied here that the author of Hebrews is comparing the efficiency of the sacrifice of Christ with all the insufficiency of the sacrifices of the Old Testament that need to go on and on and on and on again. Amen? Jesus' sacrifice was perfect, complete, and that's it. One time, one event. Now, I don't know about you, but so far, I love this text, right? It is just tells us so much about Jesus and who he is, right? But do you want to know the one thing that really blows my mind away in the whole passage? Not what we have already talked about. What blows my mind away is this coming part. That phrase, he has by himself purged us from our sins, was structured in the Greek in the middle voice to emphasize the fact that the one who made the purification was Jesus himself. That's what the author of Hebrews want to tell us. He himself came and purged us from our sins. Amen? The author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus, when he wanted to purge us from our sins, he didn't send an aide, he didn't send an assistant, he didn't send his right-hand man. He himself came down to perform purification for our sins on the cross. Amen? Think about that. Think about that. The one for whom everything was created. The one by whom whom everything was created, the one without whom there is no glory for God, the one who is the exact representation of God, the one who sustained everything with just one word of his mighty power. The author of Hebrews is saying that exact same one came down from heaven, became a human like you and me, so he can go to the cross and endure that shameful, disgraceful, torturous death for your, have, for your behalf and my behalf so you and I can be saved. Amen? Amen. 
This is for me. The single most mind-blowing thing that the author of Hebrews has said in this text so far. Amen? Think about that. Think about that. The one for whom everything was created. This is somebody so great. Everything was made for him. Amen? Yet in the book of Psalms, Psalm 22, he said, I am a worm and not a man because what happened to him on the cross. Amen? Do you see the massive difference? The one who's the legal owner of everything came all the way down to be a worm and not even a man on the cross. The one by whom the creator of everything. Isaiah said that on the cross he was so marred and so disfigured that you cannot even tell that he is a human being. Amen? The one who is the very display and the radiance of the glory of God on the cross was shamed, was despised, was rejected, was spit at, and the shame and disgrace has broken his heart for you and me. Amen? The one who is everything that God is. Paul said that he made himself nothing, became in the form of man. And not only that, but being in the form of man, he was obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross, the most shameful, disgraceful, lowest place anybody could ever go to. Amen? This is the one who is the exact representation of God. Amen? He is the one who is upholding everything by the word of his power. Yet on the cross we see him being led to the slaughter like a sheep. With, uh, and before his shearer he did not open his mouth. He was crucified as of weakness. This is the one who says a word. And the machinery of this world is set in place. Yet on the cross, he had no power. He let the human race, the one that he created from the very dust of this earth, slap him, mock him, despise him, and reject him. Why would he do that? Because he loves you and he loves me. And there was no other way for our sins to be purified except that the divine son of the living God would come from heaven and died for you and me. This words that the author of Hebrews is saying here is almost running parallel to what Paul was telling us in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. He's talking about Jesus, and he said, Jesus, who is being in the very nature God. Remember the exact representation of his very being? It's almost the same thing. He did not consider equality with God something he can hold onto for his own personal advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in the human likeness and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself even more by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is as low as anybody can ever get. The one who is the highest in the highest places has came down to the lowest places for your sins and my sins. Amen? But number seven, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Sat down at the right hand of majesty. It seems like here the author of Hebrews was alluding to uh, Psalm 110 verse 1 when the father is saying to the son, sit at my right hand. Till I make your enemies your footstool. And actually that verse was quoted many, many times in the, in the, 
in the book of Hebrews, or referenced to many times in the, in the book of Hebrews. Three times at least we see that the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus uh, sitting at the right hand of God in, in chapter here, and then in chapter 8 verse 1, in chapter 10 verse 12, and in chapter 12 verse 2, four times in total, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The word majesty here is pretty much a reference to God the Father. That's, that's all what it is, saying that he sat down at the right hand of God on high. Now, what does it mean that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God? We touched base about that before when we talked about Ephesians chapter 2. But the idea here that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God after he did that perfect and complete salvation is twofold, at least. Number one, that his sacrifice on the cross was approved and accepted by God. Amen? If you look back at the tabernacle of the Old Testament, there's a lot of furniture in it. We talked about this before, but the one piece, the one furniture that does not exist in the tabernacle is a chair. The high priest cannot sit because he's offering incomplete sacrifices. Therefore, he has to always stand up before God to offer continual sacrifices. The author of Hebrews tells us that point blank in chapter 10, verse 11 to 12. And it talks about this. And every priest, every high priest of the Old Testament does what? Read with me. Stands. Not sit, but stands. Ministering. How often? Daily. And offering how, how frequent? Repeatedly. The same sacrifices which can never take sin away. Why? The high priest of the Old Testament has to always stand because his sacrifices can never take sin away. And because the sacrifices his offering can never take sin away, he must stand all the time before God. Amen? Look at this good news now. But this man, amen, the man that is, his name is Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of majesty on high. Amen. Jesus sat down because his sacrifice was perfect. His sacrifice was complete. His sacrifice was forever. He doesn't need to stand anymore to offer more sacrifices to God. Amen. But number two, sitting at the right hand of God is a place of honor and it's a place of authority. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, here is what Paul said, uh, that he wants us to, to see the power that, is God, that God is used to work it in us according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Same thing like Hebrews here. Verse 21. Far above. That's the place of authority. And the place of honor. Far above all principalities and power and might and dominion. And every name to be named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. Amen. And he put. Because he sat at the right hand of God. All things under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Let's, let's count these seven descriptions of the Son, and then we'll pray. I hope this is going to help you engrave it in your mind. Number one, he is the one who God has appointed heir of everything. With it goes that through him God has made all things. Number three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. With it goes that he is the exact representation of God's very nature. Number five, he's the one upholding, sustaining, maintaining all things actively by the word of his power. Number six, he's the one who made by himself. 
by himself. Let this word sink in your mind and your heart this morning. By himself. He made purification for your sins and my sins. And number seven, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Can we close our eyes and pray?